When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome back to the Inside the Boards podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We just broke over 10,000 listeners with the last episode. Thanks so much for taking the time to study and learn with us. We've done some pretty cool things over this past half a year, including teaming up with Doximity to bring you residency advice from residents and program directors in various specialties. You should check out Doximity's Residency Navigator at residency.doximity.com and go to the show notes page at insidetheboards.com slash episode 018 to catch the link where you can complete your Doximity profile and enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card, thanks to Doximity, but you have to sign up by December 30th, so just a few days left. With this Match Smarter series, I wanted to give a good spread of different specialties so students could learn both what an inside view of that specialty is like from residents who are training currently in this specialty and those who are in academic medicine. Of course, I didn't get all the specialties to participate, but there will be time, hopefully, for more in the future and had a little bit of a technical difficulty with one of the great interviews I recorded for emergency medicine, but uh, the audio became corrupted, and I wasn't able to schedule uh, time to redo that with the resident who offered his time originally. So that was a bummer, but overall, I think this has been a great success, and uh, thank you for listening. And I really would appreciate if you would share the Inside the Boards podcast on social media with your friends at school and fellow residents. We've got some exciting things for... 2017 planned. But for now, as always, let's focus a little bit on learning. So today's Match Smarter segment is with Dr. Sammy Zacharia, who is an associate program director for the Johns Hopkins Bayview Internal Medicine Residency Program. So today we are going to focus a little bit on internal medicine. So internal medicine is one of the foundational, if not the foundational, 
disciplines within medical education as a whole. So I picked three items that I know are frequently covered within medical education, the review books, and for which you have to have a good understanding. So let's just launch right into them from the Open Osmosis platform, which you can check out at open.osmosis.org. We have our first case. A 25-year-old African-American woman comes to the clinic because of cough. She also notices that she's been becoming short of breath on a daily basis over the past few weeks. She denies any chest pain or wheezing. Her temperature is 36.6 degrees Celsius, which is 97.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Pulse is 68. Respirations are 16. A blood pressure is 128 over 84. Physical examination shows the lungs are clear to auscultation bilaterally, and a chest x-ray is obtained and shows bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy. Which of the following serum laboratory values is most likely to be abnormal? A. 1,25-dihydroxyvitamin D. B. Adenosine D-aminase. C. Angiotensin-converting enzyme. D. Calcium or E, quantiferon gold? And the answer is C, angiotensin converting enzyme. ACE may be elevated in as many as 60% of patients with the diagnosis of sarcoidosis. Patients with sarcoid, especially on the boards, tend to be African-American females with a history of fever, cough, weight loss, dyspnea, and arthritis. As a systemic disease, sarcoid can affect, of course, the lungs, liver, eyes, skin, where you would see erythema nodosum, which are violaceous, purpley-colored skin plaques, can affect the nervous system, heart, and kidney. Sarcoid is one of those diseases that is a favorite at all levels of board exams. For step one, you should remember that a lymph node biopsy or lung biopsy will reveal non-caseating granulomas. And for all levels, the finding on chest x-ray of bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy is a dead giveaway for the diagnosis. Sarcoid is associated with increased serum angiotensin-converting enzyme levels, hypercalcemia, as well as hypercalciuria. And while the finding of bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy or enlargement of the lymph nodes of the pulmonary hyla is something that can be caused by things other than sarcoid, such as uh, infections like tuberculosis or uh, malignancy, you should really fix in your mind that term, bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy, to the diagnosis of sarcoid. So let's look at some of the distractors here. So A was 125-dihydroxy vitamin D. While elevated levels of vitamin D are seen in about 10% of patients with sarcoid due to activation of vitamin D by macrophages in the granulomas, elevated ACE levels occur in 60%. B was adenosine D-aminase. These levels can be higher in patients with sarcoidosis. However, the sensitivity and specificity of the finding is low, and therefore this one is ruled out. D was calcium. This is probably what you would call the most attractive distractor, the thing that is probably picked next after the correct answer of angiotensin-converting enzymes. 
A lot of times you can break down a question to two answers between which you're a little bit stuck. And how do you make the decision as to which one you should pick? Sometimes it comes down to knowing the fact that while hypercalcemia is a finding in sarcoidosis, the finding is only seen in up to 15% of patients, which is in contradistinction to angiotensin converting enzyme levels, which are elevated in as high as 60%. Sometimes you just have to know what is most common. Choice E was quantifurin gold. This test is used as a highly sensitive and specific evaluation of patients with tuberculosis. And the learning point here is probably to highlight the fact that one of the things people learn about sarcoid is that it's associated with a negative TB test. However, that refers to the tuberculin or PPD skin test. Patients with sarcoid have that finding. However, a quantifurin test would, if the patient had TB, still be positive. You should think of this in terms of the idea that a tuberculin skin test that is negative is highly sensitive for sarcoid. Pretty much every patient with sarcoid has a negative TB test. Of course, that's not saying all that much since most people in a general population are going to have a negative tuberculin skin test. Therefore, a positive tuberculin skin test would effectively rule out sarcoid in a general population. So fever, cough, malaise, weight loss in an African-American female with bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy on a chest x-ray, that's sarcoidosis. On the boards, patients will have elevated or may have elevated angiotensin-converting enzyme levels in their blood, followed next by elevated serum calcium. So moving on. A 75-year-old woman comes to the office because of a three-month history of chest pain and shortness of breath on exertion. Physical examination shows bilateral pitting edema of the lower extremities. Diffuse crackles are heard over the lower lung fields on auscultation. Cardiac examination shows jugular venous distension and an S3 gallop. Serum studies show undetectable troponin levels. Chest x-ray shows cardiomegaly and pulmonary edema. Which of the following is the most appropriate management to decrease cardiac remodeling and mortality? A. Digoxin. B. Furosemide. C. Lisinopril. D. Propranolol or E, verapamil? And the answer is C, lisinopril. So this patient's history, physical exam, and imaging studies are all consistent with the diagnosis of heart failure, notably left-sided or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And effective management of this entity involves therapies aimed at improving symptoms as well as modulating the neurohormonal pathways, mediating pathological cardiac remodeling. So diuretics and inotropic agents, while useful in managing symptoms, especially during acute exacerbations, they have not been demonstrated to improve mortality. The thing you have to know is that certain drugs have been shown to reduce mortality and therefore are recommended in patients with heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. Those are angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors like lisinopril, or for patients who get cough, which is a common side effect on the board of ACE inhibitors and a reason for stopping them, moving on to an angiotensin receptor blocker. These are first-line treatments for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. In addition, 
certain beta blockers, bisoprolol, carvedilol, and metoprolol are also shown to reduce mortality in these patients. And finally, spironolactone is the third drug shown to decrease mortality in patients with heart failure in the setting of a reduced ejection fraction and should be given to patients who fall into class three or four of the New York Heart Association heart failure class. So class three is marked limitation of physical activity, but comfortable at rest, but less than ordinary activity causes fatigue, palpitations, or dyspnea. Class 4 is unable to carry on any physical activity without discomfort, with symptoms occurring at rest. So there you have it. So choice A was digoxin. Digoxin is an inotropic agent that increases myocardial contractility by inhibiting the sodium-potassium ATPase pump. It can be used in treating the symptoms of heart failure, but has not been proven to reduce mortality. Choice B was furosemide, which is a loop diuretic that inhibits the sodium-potassium 2-chloride co-transporter in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. Uh, They can also provide symptomatic relief and reduce volume overload in patients with acute decompensation. However, they have not been shown to reduce mortality. Choice D, propranolol. Beta blockers can improve symptoms and reduce mortality by modulating uh, some of those neurohormonal pathways. However, only bisoprolol, carvedilol, and metoprolol have been shown to reduce morbidity and mortality in clinical trials. Choice E, verapamil. Verapamil is one of those non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, which actually may be harmful in patients with low left ventricular ejection fraction due to the negative inotropic effects. So this would actually be contraindicated in patients with heart failure. Next question. A 37-year-old woman comes to the office because of multiple episodes of diarrhea and bloating for several years. She also reports some itchy vesicles on her skin around her arms and legs. Physical examination shows abdominal distension, but the rest of the exam is normal except for mucosal and conjunctival pallor. Which of the following is the most appropriate first-line treatment for her condition? A. Barium swallow. B. Dietary changes. C. Emodium. D. Iron supplementation. Or E. Sulfasalazine. And the answer is B. Dietary changes. All right, so the patient in this vignette has celiac disease. She's 37 with uh, multiple episodes of diarrhea and bloating. And the vignette describes the pruritic vesicular rash of dermatitis herpetiformis, which often shows up in vignettes of patients with celiac disease. The rash is due to autoimmune deposition of IgA at the dermal papillae. And the first-line treatment for celiac disease is a gluten-free diet. A little bit more about the IgA antibodies. It's IgA antibodies to gliadin, endomesium, and tissue transglutamase, which cause malabsorption and lead to the steatorrhea, diarrhea, weight loss, and in children, failure to thrive. You can see a malabsorption of the fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K, as well as inadequate calcium absorption causing osteopenia and iron malabsorption 
leading to iron deficiency anemia. The diagnosis of celiac disease can be made with serology for IgA endomesial gliadin or tissue transglutaminase antibodies and can be confirmed with a biopsy of the small intestine which will show blunting of the villi or villus atrophy for you step one level students. Let's look at some of the distractors. A was a barium swallow. You're more likely to see a barium swallow come up in discussions of achalasia, the uh, motility disorder of the esophagus, uh, which is characterized by impaired relaxation of the lower sphincter of the esophagus, which on barium swallow will reveal a bird's beak tapering of the distal esophagus, which has a pretty characteristic appearance, a very uh, narrow, thin tapering that looks like a bird's beak on an x-ray with barium contrast. Choice C, Imodium, is an opioid that is used to treat diarrhea. While it may provide symptomatic relief uh, from diarrhea by slowing colonic motility, it is not a treatment targeted at the cause of celiac disease. D, iron supplementation. Oral iron supplementation, while this might be an attractive option if you look at some of the physical exam findings within this vignette, such as mucosal and conjunctival pallor, you have to recognize that the iron deficiency anemia of celiac disease is caused by a malabsorptive process that won't be fixed without first removing gluten from the diet to allow healing of the gut and normal absorption processes to resume. Choice E, sulfasalazine. This drug is used in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, and inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, but is not used to treat celiac disease. All right, so that's all we have learning-wise today. Let's move on to our interview for the Doximity Match Smarter segment brought to you by Doximity's Residency Navigator. Welcome to the Match Smarter segment. Today I have Sammy Zacharia here. He is an internal medicine physician plus um, actually a critical care physician at Johns Hopkins, currently where he's an associate program director for the Johns Hopkins Bayview Internal Medicine Residency Program. He completed his medical school at Jefferson Medical College and stuck around in Philly uh, to do his IM residency at Thomas Jefferson University where he then went to the University of Maryland for a cardiology fellowship. And you must know something about graduate medical education because you did another fellowship in critical care at UCSF. So welcome, Sammy. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure. I'd kind of like to focus just on general internal medicine um, as we consider uh, today's conversation. Why should someone choose the specialty of internal medicine nowadays? What stands out as the reason to you? Well, there's a, I think there's a lot of good reasons to do internal medicine. Uh, number one, it's the one of the major uh, specialties that allows for a longitudinal patient relationship. And so you could conceivably take care of a patient for 20, 30 years. And that's kind of nice, especially if you like making that deep connection with your patients. Um, also, it has a huge variety of diseases and conditions that you can treat. And so, uh, for example, I'm a cardiologist and I specialize in the ICU environment and I get to treat really sick patients and then follow up on them in the uh, clinic setting. So it's a, it gives me a variety of practice areas. Also, it's a specialty where I think you could get a chance to think a lot and also to, at the same time do procedures. And so for all, for all those appeal to me. 
And did you consider any other specialties when you were applying to residency? I did. I, I really liked radiology. And the reason why I liked radiology is because it had a lot of technology in it and computer software and diagnostic tools. And, and ultimately, I decided on internal medicine because I liked that patient connection. Okay. And cardiology, by the way, has a lot of imaging in it as well. So it's kind of a, a good fit for me. Yeah, probably uh, probably one of the subspecialties within IM that, that relies a lot on uh, technology to improve patients' lives for sure. So what do you do in a, on a day-to-day basis in your work? What's your uh, kind of work week look like? So for a couple of months and two-week shifts, I spend time in the cardiac intensive care unit. And there, you know, we treat a variety of patients, uh, including those with heart attacks and heart failure and other arrhythmias. In addition, I have a small clinic, so I get to see some of those patients I took care of in the uh, cardiac ICU months and years afterwards, after they first came to me. The other things that I do is... uh, uh, is mainly involved in the residency application process um, and, and as an associate program director and also administering the residency program at Johns Hopkins Bayview. Uh, finally, I'm involved in student teaching. So I spend a lot of time with students. I spend about 20% of my time advising and mentoring students. So it's a, it's a, it's a variety of different tasks and it keeps me busy and never bored. Yeah, well, that's good. You definitely should find something uh, specialty-wise where you can say I'm not bored when it comes to your uh, schedule. So as somebody involved in in residence selection and in the graduate medical education process, what's your ideal resident candidate look like? So in internal medicine, the major thing is that you, you want to have a, a person who's devoted to uh, caring for the individual patient. Um, this is somebody who has uh, a desire to think about a patient's condition, about addressing all of their medical issues and, and knowing them as a person. And I think a lot of times we see that in what the activities they've done and also in their personal statements. Sure. And if you had to pick three things that you'd say are the most important aspects of an internal medicine-specific residency application, what would you choose? I don't know if I could could comment specifically on internal medicine versus other specialties, but the things that I care about the most is how well they do clinically, Um, how well they do in their uh, sub-I in internal medicine, how well did they do on their um, uh, clinical clerkships, Um, mainly focusing on internal medicine, but really all around because a good internist should do reasonably well in surgery and psychiatry and everything else. Um, The other thing is sometimes we focus on the uh, board scores because it's kind of a national examination. It's sometimes very hard to tell a student from one medical school and compare them to another, and sometimes board scores are very helpful in that. And if you're in the student's shoes trying to decide where do I apply, um, what factors do you think need to be considered in terms of selecting programs where maybe you should do an away rotation um, and then ultimately apply for residency? So some specialties, that is very important uh, to do away rotations. Uh, it's almost mandatory. Internal medicine, I think, is very hard to do that because there's the average applicant probably has a wider range of programs that they're applying to, and it, it only helps marginally. It might be helpful if you get a, a rotation with a program director or somebody involved in the leadership, um, but that's difficult to obtain. Um, in other specialties, such as orthopedic surgery, that's almost mandatory, and, and when you rotate in another institution, everybody gets 
nice to know you there. Um, so for internal medicine, I think the, the things that I would consider when I'm looking for a program is, number one, what kind of program do you want? Do you want a program that's more research heavy? Do you want a program that gives you options in terms of doing fellowships? Um, do you want What kind of patients do you want to see? What kind of uh, area of the country do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a city? Do you want to live in a suburban or, or a rural environment? All these are important considerations for applicants. Okay, so you've you've done two fellowships, and internal medicine probably has the most, I would think, uh, subspecialties within the specialties of medicine more broadly. Correct. How important is it to choose the right residency if your goal ultimately is to do a subspecialty fellowship in, in say, cardiology or critical care? So that's an important point. It's harder to get a, uh, a good fellowship if those fellowships are not available at your institution. Um, so it is, it, and one of the reasons is maybe there's a smaller, let's say if you're interested in cardiology and there's no cardiology fellowship and there's few cardiology attendings, you have a, a, a smaller exposure to that specialty and you may not uh, know enough about what in, entails to be a cardiologist. Or if you're interested in allergy and immunology and there's only one or two staff in, in that field, it's harder to kind of get a feel of what you want, want and get recommendation letters and maybe do research in those things. So it, it does matter. Um, and, and, and when you're researching programs, it's nice to know where the residents ended up for fellowships and whether there's fellowships are available at that institution. Now, for those who are going into a primary care or for general internal medicine, that is not as relevant. In fact, it might be better not to have any fellowships. And that's only because you'd have less fellows getting in the way of your learning, I guess. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I guess it's sort of paradoxical. You may um, get more exciting experiences if your program only has residents staffing, uh, you know, cases that would normally go to cardiology or nephrology fellows or something like that. I guess that's just, just the nature of uh, graduate medical education. Well, it all depends on what type of personality you are. So like, for example, in some places, the fellows are great teachers. And so you could actually learn more and they might be more available than attendings. So it depends on the institution. And, and when you're on interviews, you have to figure out the culture of the place to see, are the fellows involved in teaching the residents? Are they heavily involved in care of the patient? And then, you might benefit from it. But in some cases, especially if you want to do a rural medicine or you want to be out in a, in a, in a small solo practice, it may be better to do, to do a, and go into a smaller program. So how did you personally decide to do your residency at uh, Thomas Jefferson? For me, when I was deciding on a program, one of the big things that made me stay at Jefferson was uh, my the program director there. Um, he clearly was involved in resident education and mentorship. And I think that's very important. You want a program director um, and associate program directors and the uh, residency leadership to, to know you and to advocate for you. But that was a big part of my decision. So, I mean, you mentioned going on the interview trail before and, and trying to decide what the culture of an institution is like. You've got half a day or a day to kind of decide that when you, when you are a resident applying and, and interviewing for programs. Uh, what things should you be on the lookout for uh, during those interview days? That's that's a, a very good point because it's hard to get a sense in, in half a day. I think the first thing is, is are there residents there? that are from your same medical school, but because perhaps they could compare 
their experiences to how they were at their home, their previous institution. Um, another thing is, is do you have access to the residents and do you have ample opportunity to talk to the residents? Um, I, one thing that I always was wary of is when you go to a program and you don't really talk to the residents very much. Uh, you want, you it almost makes you wonder why. Um, so programs that have lots of residents and, and allow for plenty of time to interact with residents is a, is something that I think is a strength uh, on the interview day and beyond. The, set, the third thing is, is, is how much access do you have afterwards, like if you have follow-up questions. I mean, in some places, they, they encourage you to reach out and, and discuss um, potential training pathways. For example, if you want to work with a certain group of people, they might put you in touch with that program to see if you would be a good fit there. Um, one thing that we, we had, like we had an applicant who was interested in allergy and immunology, and and she wanted us to contact uh, so, uh, professors in those fields uh, so that she would know what how she would uh, fit in during her residency time and beyond. Yeah, and that's that's one thing I'd like you to comment on for your own specific program. What are things or examples that that might show the unique aspects of the Johns Hopkins Bayview program? I think one thing that that we're really proud of is is our emphasis on uh, patient centered care, and, and and a lot of programs uh, that's an important part of their training, and it's something that's a hallmark of ours. We have something called the Aliki Initiative, where it's an entire service which is cut in half uh, the number of patients, and you in, in turn learn more about those patients. So you learn about them as a person. You go out and do a home visit after they get discharged. You learn about um, the circumstances that led to their hospitalization. You learn about their functional status and what they liked before. It's been very, very popular and it almost brought back the humanity to medicine. Um, the second key feature of our program is medicine for the greater good. And this is where um, our residents focus on improving the health of uh, patients in the community and nationally and internationally. And that's been two things that we're very proud of. Um, obviously, you know, we were part of Johns Hopkins, so we have a lot of research there and, and we have a wide variety of patients because we were part of a huge uh, uh, university and hospital complex. Um, but I think those two things distinguish us more than anything else. Fair enough. And, you know, one thing I would say in, in being in medicine now for so long is internal medicine has the reputation of being the specialty, perhaps with psychiatry too, that, that really shines or excels in terms of reminding us of the humanistic aspects of medicine. Why do you think that is? I think it's because you get to spend more time with the patient. It's something that I, th many programs that that's, they, they emphasize it, that getting to know your patient as a person um, makes a difference in their care. Um, it leads to better health outcomes, it leads to um, a better relationship with them. So I think medicine tends to focus on that. Um, but I would argue that almost all specialties, except for, I guess, maybe uh, pathology or radiology, developing a good relationship matters a lot. And, I, and I've seen fantastic surgeons and fantastic uh, obstetricians who could develop relationships with their patients um, where they really care, where it's obvious they really care about their patient in, in minutes. Um, and, and that's a skill that I think is important to all specialties. Definitely. All right. So when you interview someone, when you're looking at their application for your program, what are the things, I mean, you mentioned a few that kind of you highlight and look for, but what what's your process for vetting an applicant? So that's a great question. And I think I didn't know how that worked until I became part of the appli the um, application committee. Um, the, the first thing that we look for is, how well did they do in their medical school? So every program has different 
different criteria that they look for, but the majority of them, they care about how well you did clinically. Uh, they care that you um, um, were seemed interested in internal medicine, that you went the extra mile and took care of the patient, that you got to know your patients the best on your team. You could see that in the dean's letter. You could see that in their internal medicine rotation and in their sub-I. You also want to see how well they do on their boards. Uh, did they do other things uh, outside of just clinical work that rounds them out as a person? Were they involved in extracurricular activities that that, that made a difference. Um, and then you'd also look at their letter writers. Did the letter writers write things consistent with how they portray themselves? Did they you know, comment on their, their ability to interact with a patient? I mean, these things matter and it gives you a, a good flavor of the, of the applicant. In our program, we spend some time on the personal statement because we feel like it's the most, uh, I get, I don't, I don't want to use the term personal, but it's the, something that it's the most, uh, less cookie cutter thing about the application process, and it could tell us unique insights about the person. But in general, the first thing we look at is the dean's letter and how well they did clinically, and the second thing is the board scores. Yeah, I think that's important uh, that you mentioned the the fact that, yeah, of course, every program is going to have its own sort of algorithm as to, you know, the yeah. things that they rank highly. But in general, it's, it's probably very similar. So um, how do you get the experiences that help you shine clinically? Um, in my view, if you know your patient the best, and if you're able to advocate for that patient the best, you will do very well um, on any rotation. Um, and then the residents and attendings can rely on you to be the patient's primary caregiver. I think that's the key to the process. You have to know your patients the best, and you have to spend time with them. If that is obvious in the letter writers and in Dean's letter, then you'll do just fine. Fair enough. And then let me ask, just to piggyback on the other aspect you mentioned, the personal statement. What sorts of things in a personal statement really catch your eye? I mean, even if you can provide like a specific example of something that really stood out to you as as uh, somebody who evaluates these things. I think one of the things that is most important is to mention why you're going into the specialty. Um, for example, the average person it seems obvious, goes, but I know that sounds silly. But if you're, for example, if you go into uh, obstetrics and gynecology, you'd want to be, you'd want to take care of uh, women who are in um, pregnant uh, and want to deliver, um, and then that process and be a part of that. In internal medicine, that's that's a thing that we it needs to be obvious to us that why you want to go into it. Either, hey, you like the diagnostic process behind or the way that we think in internal medicine or you want the longitudinal patient relationship or you want something. Something about them has to. You just love about. table rounds and you're the only specialty <laughs> who does it. <laughs> yeah, well, that too. I, I, I don't know how effective that will be, but I, but you could try. <laughs> so, um, yeah, um, but, but those are the kind of things that we care about. Do you think that then the way you answer or the way you construct your personal statements should influence where you're going to choose to apply? That's a tough question because I've seen a few applicants who personalize a statement for our residency program, and it does make me pay attention to them more. However, it is exhausting if you're applying to, let's say, 30 programs to customize one for each one. And so I, I don't know if it's super high yield. Um, so if you have time and if there's a few programs that you're particularly interested in, then it might be worthwhile doing that. Let's just say somebody wants to go into IM because they want to be a critical care doc or a mm -hmm. nephrologist. Um, should that be part of the personal statement? Yes, um, you could easily mention that. 
Um, in fact, many applicants do that and they say, well, I'm interested in cardiology or critical care um, because of this experience. I enjoyed taking care of the patient, nice use setting, and I thought about them in this manner. Um, so we see that all the time and that's fine. I would encourage people, though, like if they write that, to also mention that they were going to keep an open mind and consider other uh, subspecialties within medicine. Be diplomatic. Mm. I think exactly. That's good you advice got it. in general. But I don't want to take too much of your time. But last question. What advice do you have for a student who might not have exceptional or stellar marks in every aspect of a residency application? Maybe some middling board scores. How should they address that as an applicant? So I think uh, you bring up a great point because very, very few people are perfect. Um, most people have some issue with either um, a this board is, score. This is going to be news to a lot of the listeners who are probably <laughs> med students, right? That's true. No, but this is, this is something that I think is important because, you know, we're not perfect, but it has to be explained well. So, for example, if you didn't do well on step one, well, uh, how did you react to it? Did you do better in your clinical rotation? Did you uh, um, do better on, on, on step two or, or, you know, CK or CS? Or if you had a, a tough performance in internal medicine, the, the, uh, the third year required clerkship, well, what did you do about it? Did you take more rotations to get better? Or did you take a, another uh, more than one sub-by or, or more than one clinical elective just to make yourself better? The other thing is you have to explain anything that's that – you have to explain anything that it could be considered in negative light. Um, you, you don't want to make excuses for things. Um, and you don't want to just ignore things. So, for example, if if you took a period of time off uh, for personal reasons or for professional reasons, mention that. Don't don't just leave it blank because people will assume the worst. Um, finally, if there's some programs that you really like, um, it might be helpful for somebody to. Uh, advocate for you at that program. Or you could even send an email saying, hey, I really like your program because of this, this, and this. Um, I know, I know that I, you know, that you're reviewing lots of applications, but I really want to come to your program. I think that actually helps. Okay. And actually we've, we've, we've taken people in our residency program that wouldn't have made the initial cut because somebody advocated for them at their home institution and saying, hey, you know what, this person is better than how their application looks like. Why don't you give them a shot and interview them? All right. Well, thanks for your time. So check out residency.doximity.com. Sammy, thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure and honor being on this uh, podcast. Yeah, thank you. The music for today's show is thanks to The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die. The song is I Can Be Afraid of Anything of Harmlessness. You can follow them on Twitter at T-W-I-A-B-P. That's The World is a Beautiful Place. Or check out their website, theworldisabeautifulplace.com. Thanks, guys, for letting us use the tune and keep making great music. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards, or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. 
Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.